Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Phil Giudici. It's an honor to have Phil on the show because he's got 40 years in and around clean tech at a very strategic level from a wide range of perspectives. Phil started his career at Chevron, spent 19 years at Mercer Management Consulting, where he ultimately led their energy practice, was employee number three at Enernoc, one of the leaders in demand response that ultimately went public. He was also the CEO of Ambry for many years, a long-duration battery company. Phil also spent time in government as the commissioner of the Department of Energy Resources for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and ultimately the energy undersecretary for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Phil's also been on several boards of both private companies and nonprofits in the space. Phil and I have a great discussion in this episode where Phil goes through his background and the impressive things that he's done, but he also talks about where we are in terms of solving decarbonization and what it will take in order for us to get there and kind of the pragmatic realities that we're not in a great spot, but also really why he's an optimist and what some practical things are that each and every one of us can do, regardless of our position. If we are switching careers and want to work on it full time, if we're looking at what to do with our time, if we're looking at what to do with our resources philanthropically, if, if we're looking at the political landscape and what we can do with our votes, I, I think we, we pretty much cover it all in this episode. And I learned a lot. Hopefully you will as well. Let's get him out here. Phil Judici. welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, you're in your house, so <laughs> of course you're glad to be here. Yes, I am glad to be in the house and glad to be here with you. Well, thanks so much for making the time. It, it's funny because I'm, well, I'm nine months in, so I'm still, I would still definitely say I'm new and I'm really glad it feels like a good time to be bringing new energy and fresh ideas and beginner mind to the space. But at the same time, that needs to be married with deep institutional knowledge. And so when I carve out an hour to come and speak with someone like yourself, it feels like, I mean, standing on the shoulder of giants, you've done so much in your career for such a long time in this area, in the private sector, in the public sector, on boards, with philanthropic pursuits. And so it's a, it's a real honor to be here. Well, thank you. I appreciate the acknowledgement. And we're all in the beginner mind still. So yes, I've done some decades of work in this space, but I don't by any means have the answers. And I'm looking to learn and trying to figure out how to be productive in the next decades to come to really make a difference. Well, I thought the only reason that I didn't have the answers is because I was new. I'm so. afraid not. <laughs> this is a lifelong pursuit. <laughs> and we'll get into some of that. Uh, awesome. So maybe just for starters, how'd you get here? It goes back to college days. And in college, I started off, as many have done, thinking about becoming a psychology major. And I got exposed to that and said, you know, the science here just doesn't really appeal. It didn't feel rigorous enough to me. And somehow I got into geology as a field. The science there appealed to me very much. And as well as the sort of thinking about 4 billion years of Earth history and thinking about the jigsaw puzzle of, you know, finding a few pieces, a few rocks around the surface and trying to tell the story of how this all came to pass. So I did that for about six years as a professional 
school. I got a bachelor's and master's degree, was involved right from the get-go as an employee for Chevron looking for uranium. And so I started getting excited about minerals and energy and all of that. And it has become a lifelong pursuit. From there, I went back to school and got an MBA from Dartmouth and then got into management consulting, which was a field I didn't even know existed when I went back to MBA land. I'd gone to the school thinking- I thought that's the only field that MBA people know exists. Well, investment <laughs> banking and, and MBA and management consulting are the two dominant hiring for top people from MBA schools. But I went to school looking for the union card that said I wasn't just a scientist type, that I actually had qualifications beyond that. And people in particular, I wanted to be you know, in management and kind of working with different people. I assumed I was going to go back into an energy company upon my graduation. In the, the course of my MBA, I got introduced to management consulting actually through a class project. And one of the management consultants there came up to me and said, hey, you got some skills that might be useful in this field. And so I said, really? Tell me more. And it became a summer job. And then I got hired in full time with the assumption, again, that I was going to do that for two or three years, then go to a client or go to a startup or go to something else. Venture capital was the other world that I looked at out of MBA. And I really didn't like the idea of being sort of an apprentice in the back room running spreadsheets for years before I would actually get out and start making things happen. And the management consulting just sort of hit as, wow, these are really interesting problems that we get to work on, really interesting people, pretty motivated clients for the vast majority of it. And, uh, and you know, let's give it a go. Turned out to be about 18 years of my professional life. After two or three years, I realized I really like what I'm doing. And there isn't anything else on the agenda that actually was stimulating me as nearly as much. But it was a unique time in the world of management consulting, I think, in, in many ways. I remember some of our first clients, we could go away, we'd get the sort of the problem sort of defined, then we'd go away for a month and we'd take some, you know, government data and replot it as pie charts and bar charts and come back and they would just be wowed, you know, where'd you get these insights? And and over time, it became a very different set of challenges to, to create value for clients, but it was always a lot of fun and really motivated clients. All sectors? So I was I joined into the energy practice at Temple Barker and Sloan. We got acquired by Marsh McLennan. We became Mercer Management Consulting. Under that time, I ran the energy practice for about 10 of those 18 years worldwide. And it was really interesting projects. My very first project as a summer associate, I literally was handed a plane ticket on the day I joined, told to meet my project manager the next night in Philadelphia. And the next day after that, we were driving into a nuclear power plant. And we'd been hired by the commission of Pennsylvania to look at the prudency of this management team in operating an outage at that nuclear power plant that was ongoing. And it was an outage that occurred because a short had occurred in the generator. And the generator is, you know, larger, maybe 10 or 15 feet in diameter and probably 30 feet long, a big electrical piece of equipment. And it had vaporized about three meters, cubic meters of this generator because the short had gone off. So our task was in real time as they were managing through this, this outage to help them and help evaluate whether how prudent they were doing on this task. And I was the young associate on the job and you know collecting data and analytics and going to meetings and trying to understand what was going on. In the course of that summer, the plant manager came to me about halfway through and said, now tell me again, were you nuclear Navy before this experience? And you know, it was my very first time in a power plant of any 
any kind, certainly a nuclear-powered plant. But I started realizing that, you know, asking smart questions, being open-minded about it, digging into the data are all things that can be really, really helpful. And we pointed out some things that they changed their practices and they were able to move along more quickly and get the, the outage completed. But it was a really interesting set of management challenges. That was the first summer. Subsequently, I've worked on a really diverse set of clients and circumstances. We did a lot of utility work. So we worked initially, again, for utility commissions where we would go in and understand every aspect of a utility from getting the trucks rolling in the morning, helping to understand how meter reading is being done, how power plants are being constructed, transmission lines, every aspect of a utility, we would be hired to sort of make an evaluation of and offer suggestions for making it better. So it gave me a really deep grounding in how utilities functions and what the challenges are and what the what the operations are like to kind of make it all work and, and a really deep respect for the challenge of, of what all of is involved in making utility work. And it also got me involved in helping the federal government spin out the U.S. Enrichment Corporation, which was the branch of the DOE that had been enriching uranium for the entire civilian and and military uses for uranium. We got it set up as a public corporation that was traded on the New York Stock Exchange, which developed relationships at the administration. This was during the Clinton administration that got me and a team of folks involved in helping Ukraine look at options for post-Chernobyl. So this was the 10-year anniversary of Chernobyl. We were there in 1996, and we were looking to build a power plant with all sort of private sector funding for a power plant the size of the continuing operating reactors at Chernobyl so that they could then shut down those reactors. It got to be a very complicated set of circumstances. We actually had letters of intent from financiers and from off-takers and stuff, and we're kind of moving forward towards a first close on this about a billion-dollar project, and it got stopped politically because of changes in Ukraine that got to be impossible for State Department or, or White House to work through, and so it didn't come to pass. But it was, you know, again, really interesting problems, really fascinating sort of challenges that that got me exposed to a whole different world. In Ukraine, they were actually adopting the deregulation model that had gone through much of the US and Western Europe. And we were meeting with the energy minister there. And he was explaining, I will never forget, he was explaining to us that their biggest challenge in this deregulation model is getting customers to appreciate that they actually have to pay for the electricity they consume. Because in the Soviet world, there was this sort of state controlled everything and owned everything. And so the idea of getting customers to pay for electricity was, you know, not automatic. And so the idea of having a revenue stream that you could actually, you know, build into a new sort of competitive market structure and and be able to potentially privatize this was actually not straightforward of a challenge. It was also a time where Ukraine had undergone sort of the first wave after the Soviet disintegration of the Soviet empire. And they hadn't sort of built in the civilian structures yet. I think that the time one of the State Department folks had told me that something like 60% of the of the nutritional intake for average Ukrainian was coming from farms that that they would grow themselves, their own, you know, garden plots. And a garden plot in Ukraine meant that someone in a Soviet style apartment was coming down 
to their lobby, getting on a bus, driving you know five or ten miles out of town to their little quarter acre where they were literally growing the food that their family was depending on, as they were also trying to do their jobs and and kind of make the world work. So it was a very different exposure than what we're used to kind of in the United States here in terms of how government and, and society works. But and and there was a lot of other sort of fascinating experiences. I got involved in China and building major factories in China, got involved a little bit in South Africa in trying to deal with some of the challenges of their post-apartheid utility structure. But a lot of our work was with U.S. and North American utilities, Canadian utilities doing reorganizations, downsizings, re-engineering, trying to find efficiencies in them, and then mergers and acquisitions, helping them through the process of figuring out how they could actually lower costs by getting bigger. And it was all very, very fascinating work. And again, it taught me tremendous respect for the challenges of a utility, but also it was like tremendous appreciation for the limitations of utilities in terms of their ability to to adopt new practices and and be innovative. It's just not built into their business models in in a productive manner. So it becomes a real challenge as we try and move our whole world economy, you know, post-fossils into a much more renewable and sustainable future. And I'm sure there's a ton more stories there from your time in consulting. And I also know that you've done so much since then. You've been on a bunch of boards. You've built a battery company. You've done done some (laughs) philanthropic pursuits. You had big roles in state government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We could definitely spend a whole episode, probably several episodes, just on the past, But then there's also where are we now and where are we going? And given all the things you've done, I want to make sure we capture those as well. So maybe just kind of summarize when you left consulting, what kinds of things you've done between then and now, and then we can switch gears and we can start talking about the good stuff. Good. Yeah. And all that stuff's good stuff too. Just to be clear. Understood. But we, there's a lot we need to squeeze into this little episode. Yeah. Let me dig in. So from consulting, it was actually 9-11-2001, the day that the towers came down in New York. I was there. 300 of our colleagues actually lost their life there. And I took a step back and said, I had already built up enough capital that I didn't look like I was going to need to work for money anymore in my life. And so I said, let's you know, back down massively in my consulting world and figure out what's next. And I decided that I was just going to spend my time doing what's productive. So I'm in my early to mid 40s at this stage and kind of looking at the world. And it turned out that there was two or three charitable activities that I got real excited about. People that I knew that brought me into them, creating the Center for Effective Philanthropy, getting involved with my family down in Haiti on healthcare issues down there. From that, I also got involved in startups, and one of the startups turned out to be Enernock. I was on several boards, made some personal investments, and in Enernock, I became what was called initially my title was managing director. So this is a new, brand new startup. There was I was like the third person to get involved besides the two founders, and it was the concept was how can we sort of tap into all of the end users and be able to harness their demand to avoid blackouts in the same kind of structure as we do with peaking turbines, basically. And we got the, we won a chunk of a significant RFP that the ISO New England issued for an emergency need for capacity in the next two or three years down in Southwest Connecticut. 
And we ended up, I think, turning on about 100 megawatts of capacity over the next three or six months that they didn't have access to without Enernoc that was able to be responsive in the, time, in the urgent times where the alternative was we were going to go to blackouts or brownouts. Instead, we could tap into these customers to either lower their, gener- their demand or fire up their backup generation to be able to be an alternative already existing assets. So it was only about the internet and an um, implementation force that could go out and tap into these customers and make a difference. And it was the, the economics were better than it was if we had built a new power plant down there. So it was really kind of attractive. That was four years, became a public company. On the day that we actually went public, I got a call. I had gotten prior calls from the governor's office. I got a call from the governor's office to say, hey, we built a team here. We want to go and do really interesting things from a public policy standpoint. In Massachusetts. So I signed on as the energy commissioner, later became the undersecretary of energy. And it was a phenomenal four years. The Governor Patrick, his secretary of energy and environment, Ian Bowles, only wanted to do what made sense. And they wanted to do as much of it as quickly as they could. And we got a ton done. Made major legislation pushed forward, lots of you know specifics done. We created the with the nine other Northeastern states, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. I was elected as the treasurer of that and then the vice chairman. You're giving me a serious inferiority complex here. No, Keep going. No, no, Keep no, going. No. Right. And, and, and it was just a lot of fun. And it was really neat. This was also during stimulus times. So Obama had gotten elected that fall or t- 2008. And I was elected the national chair of energy officials. So I was down in Congress testifying in the, in the Senate and the House on Waxman-Markey and, and on other bills as it related and working with the White House on stimulus as it relates to energy. So it was, you know, making a lot happen and, and was a lot of fun. On the day that I, I accepted, I told my family, my mom said, why do you want to do that? You know, the press is just going to eat you alive. It's just not going to be, you know, what you expect. A lot of friends told me that it was, I, my patience, my impatience would never work in government sector. And I was going to be, you know, six months a year, just climbing the walls and needing to get, get out of there. And that was not at all the case. I often talk about those four years as some of the most productive in my life, not economically, but in terms of making a difference in the world. And it was because it was an amazing team that was really motivated. One of the the signature pieces of legislation we got passed was called the Green Communities Act. 100% support at the legislature. Every Republican, House and Senate, including our then state Senator Scott Brown, voted in favor of this. That made major changes in how efficiency programs and renewables were being done in the the Commonwealth. And it was all geared as it can be at, at state level with the idea that maybe if we really can demonstrate success here. Others will take this up and do it in their states, or maybe we'll even get it on a federal basis or do it in different parts of the world. And so that was a very clear mindset in all of our parts. Well, let's take some risk. Let's do some experiments and let's see how we can, can make a difference in the world. And so there was a great deal of enthusiasm during that time frame about what we were getting done, not just for ourselves and our little state here, but as potential examples that could be applied to other parts of the, the country and the world. And it has been in part, but it's a real challenge and it hasn't had nearly the progress that I would have loved to see anywhere in the world against these things. Well, you, you've still done a ton of great stuff that we haven't talked about yet, but, but why, don't we, why don't we try to squeeze that into two, two final minutes about Phil's background because, because there's a lot of 
other stuff I want to get to, but there's stuff that we have to cover that you didn't talk about okay. yet. Yeah, and then because the, we didn't talk about Ambry, we yeah. didn't talk about you know Prime boards. Coalition yeah. and Clean Air yeah. Task Force. So and, next yeah. phase, is, first fuel. Uh, yeah, ne- next phase <laughs> was after four years. I said that's great. I'm done. Time for the next team to come in here. And I assumed I would go back to basically advising different firms and sort of taking a, a, a more leisurely workload on. And that's when I joined the first fuel board, fascinating company, really interesting analytic insight that they could actually do the equivalent of an energy audit, an onsite energy audit, basically from micro weather data and all of the interval meter data from a building. Commercial buildings is, is the focus and be able to discern, you know, dozens of end use, uses just from those data streams. And it was really phenomenal. It, it evolved and recently has been acquired by Tendril and it will continue to evolve in terms of its analytic re- richness and, and what it can deliver. And I also got a call from a professor who I'd known from MIT. I had worked with just a little bit as a kind of a, as a friend that had requested me to help him on a, a different venture. And he asked me for my counsel in recruiting a CEO onto what then was called the Liquid Metal Battery Corporation. In the course of that conversation, it was quite clear he was actually asking me to join as the CEO, but he didn't want to come out immediately and, and ask that. And so we met and met with the team and I got real excited about it. Very novel solution to a very important business problem, which is storing electricity. And we'll get into some more of the specifics around that. The novel solution was using liquid metal akin to how aluminum smelters work, which now take enormous amounts of electricity off the grid, turn dirt, bauxite into pure metal at a cost of 50 cents a pound. And the insight from the scientific team, Dr. Sadaway and, and others, was that they could actually make that a reversible process, not not using aluminum, but with different liquid metals. They could actually generate and regenerate cathodes and anodes by charging and discharging what effectively becomes a battery. And, and it has some amazing properties, including almost zero fade. So it's likely to be able to last tens of thousands of cycles with no fade using earth abundant materials. It looks like it'll come out as very low cost. That was seven years of experience on, on my part. And it was really fascinating. We had great backing at the initial when I joined between the Gates Investments and also Total. Subsequently, Coastal Ventures came on board and, and other investors came on board. But it has taken a lot longer to come to a commercial marketplace than I had hoped at that time. And you're on the boards of Clean Air Task Force and, and Prime Coalition. Yeah. So Sa- yeah. Sarah and Matthew from so, so Mine have come on. Uh, Armin came on. Actually, we, uh, we just published his episode today. Deepika from Clean Air Task Force will be publishing an episode from hers as well that, that, that we recorded. But But it was... I knew a lot of what we just talked about, but it was important for listeners for two reasons. One, I wanted people to understand that the discussion we're about to have is coming, like people should really listen to what you have to say (laughs) because you've done a lot and have experienced a lot, like more than almost anyone I know in, in clean tech. I was gonna say clean tech innovation, but much broader than that. So that that's one. But then the second thing is, you're an example of what is possible from one person in terms of for people to say, but I'm just one person, how big a difference can I have, right? And you've made such a big difference, but switching gears, right? I wanna reconcile that with Phil. So how are we doing in the climate fight? We're not doing well and we're not doing well. And that's now the discussion I wanna have because you see, it's like, I just talked to you and I get so pumped up 
I'm like, oh man, you've achieved so much. Like I can go and if I can even have a fraction of the impact that you've had, then I'm doing great and that's amazing and I'm so inspired and that makes me feel good, right? But then if you reconcile that with how we're actually doing, we're not doing well, right? So that's now the discussion that I want to have. Yeah, Yeah. and it's really (laughs) disappointing and sad and it's not just, you know, we're not doing well in the United States. It's we're not doing well as a planet against this challenge. And as I look back, I think of times where it was like, oh, there was that opportunity. We could have continued to moving along this path and we've stopped and we've stopped basically everywhere in the world. There are some good things that are happening. Solar prices have come down massively. Wind prices have come down massively. Even lithium-ion battery prices have come down massively and, and deployments have gone up substantially. And so there's reason to hope around some of those things, but there's certainly are in the necessary but not sufficient level when you start thinking about how big this climate challenge is. And it's way bigger now than it was 10 years ago. So the kinds of things that we did, hoping that there would be an example for, you know, the country or the planet are still, you know, not adopted in a, in a, in a significant manner. The Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, trying to put a price on carbon, really looking at the electric sector, which ain't by any means the whole problem, but getting them to reconcile the need to get smart about carbon and start bringing the carbon emissions down, you know, really great example of what's possible, but it's not nearly enough and it's not expanding. There's a sort of a California trading emission that has a, some Canadian provinces that were going to trade or going to join with them, but it's just the European trading scheme that has been put in place for it's probably 10 or 15 years old now. You know, it's really not moving the needle significantly. China, we could have a whole a whole session on China. I had so much excitement about it, and I've done a little bit of work in China over the years. They were spending half of all of the clean energy spend for you know technology investments as well as deployments worldwide. They they were spending half of it. They had some very aggressive programs in terms of incentives to get renewables built out, and they had some very you know clear commitments to reducing the coal fired fleet. They overbuilt steel mills in there, and they're relaxing all of those. They're reducing their support for the renewable sector and they're relaxing their constraints around the conventional sector because they're just so driven towards short-term capital gains and trying to get you know keep employment up as much as they possibly can you know and it's so i don't see anywhere in the world i see europe is basically moribund around these issues the u.s we clearly have lost any sense of leadership around there there's some you know phenomenal work that's going on in different states massachusetts continues to do some neat stuff you know we're going to have offshore one developed like an amazing amount compared to our our little you know state's footprints new york state has done some amazing things also offshore wind and other programs there storage and stuff but these are little glimpses i think they need to still be nurtured and supported and spotlight shine on the positive aspects of it but you know the the climate challenge now i think when i was doing my initial work in in the public sector people talk about you know whatever 290 emissions at 290 or 350 you know 350.org and now our emissions are at you know 400 or 450 or whatever the current numbers are it's like holy cow we're just so quickly moving by all of those sort of guardrails that we sort of said these are important metrics and we've got to 
do things to start making a difference on them. And so I'm not optimistic that we're on a productive path. And consequently, you, you can look at me and yes, I have spent 40 plus years in this industry, but by no means am I sitting here saying I got the answers to what we need to do. And we're all you know sort of beginners when it comes to figuring this stuff out and figuring out what can be done productively and go make a difference on it. So I have a bunch of friends who they, they, they hear I'm eight or nine months in focusing on my full-time thing and they, they come to me and they're like, so, it's the answer. so give it to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? And it's like, uh, you know, you're fe- if this is how you're feeling after 40 years, right, then imagine how I'm feeling. I'm like, uh, right. And, and embrace it. Don't feel comfortable with that. You know, and this is where, and we've had this, this conversation a few times. I, I'm so in favor of people picking up a shovel and moving some dirt and finding a productive path. It may not be the ultimate answer. It may not be the full uh, the, the full solution. I mean, everybody wants the simple bumper sticker kind of solution and, you know, the silver bullet that's going to solve this. Carbon tax. The moonshot. The moonshot. Yeah. You know, we're going to somehow. Nuclear. You know. That's it. And, and it's like, I don't really want to get into those debates. They don't interest me. Go make it work in the world. And then if you can get momentum around that and make more and more work, more power to you. I do favor carbon price. I think that a lot of the challenge in this world is, you know, we're all dealing with plan B solutions or even plan C solutions because we won't face what we really need is to put a price on carbon and just let it kind of work out its way as to wait a minute. And it has to be clear, significant, and probably an escalating price until we start bringing the emissions down and then people can start making plans against it. And oh, by the way, then you start still, you know, in, in getting new investor money into this that really makes sense kind of investor money, not the times that we've had over past years where investors have only looked kind of halfway thoroughly at this industry and said, oh, it's just like telco or it's just like something else. And, and you know, we're going to be able to make a lot of money in three years because we're going to flip it and go public or whatever. And it's just not responsive to the realities of this industry. But if there was a, a real economic incentive because there was a, a carbon price that was, you know, clear, that would actually drive basic research. It would drive, you know, new undergrads and graduate students saying, well, I want to work on this field for the rest of my life. It would it would drive new investors into this. It would drive deployments. And so I think carbon price is really important. I don't see the political will for it. I, I'm excited about a few initiatives that I'm seeing trying to bring this up and, you know, both on the on the Republican side and the Democratic side, uh, we'll see what kind of momentum gets under any of this. And, and I don't have a real valuation as to who's on a productive path yet. I get your point about picking up a shovel. And actually, I think about it all the time because you've said it to me pl- <laughs> yeah. p- plenty. And I appreciate that. But anytime it comes to picking up a shovel, I can't help but feel like I'm trying to fight a forest fire with a flower pot. I hear you. I don't have a good solution for you. I think that, you know, finding what you think is going to be a productive path and then making it work and then building on that is is the key. But, you know, that's part of the nature of where, where we're at. Are you an optimist? I'm basically optimistic because I've seen us address such difficult challenges in the world, especially young people as they come into it and accomplish so many things. I'm, you know, fundamentally optimistic about human nature and and particularly America's ability to deal with difficult things. I mean, we have dealt with difficult climate things in the past. The ozone was a really big climate challenge for us about, you know, whatever it was, 20 or 25 years ago. The science behind it was roundly dismissed as kind of, you know, preliminary and not really 
Thoreau DuPont was the major producer of chlorofluorocarbons that was actually destroying the ozone. And they just solidly, you know, went against the, the early science on this. It was a couple of, I think, California University professors of, of one of the, the schools there. That were on the DuPont payroll? No, the, the opposite. They, okay. they pointed out that this is going to be a real problem. And DuPont just unleashed holy hell against them, saying this is just not true. Their science is bogus. It's just way too preliminary. In the course of, I don't remember, two, three, four years, the science got better and better and better. And I think in particular, NASA got involved and NASA started looking at all the global satellite data that they could marshal. And they realized there's this huge hole around the Arctic, Antarctica, in the ozone. And it was like, holy cow, that's that we didn't know was going to exist there. And they started, you know, doing sampling and understanding it better. And it turned out chlorofluorocarbons was like a really big problem. And DuPont went from this incredibly resistant corporation, and they were like, I can't remember, but 75% or more of the manufacturing of this. And, and they went from that sort of, no, 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 there's no problem here, to saying, yes, there is, and we've got to figure out how to get off of this over the next, I can't remember, I think they had a 10-year implementation plan to invent solutions that weren't going to destroy the ozone. And it's worked. I mean, it's not like it's perfect at any, and this was all under the Montreal Protocol. So it was a UN-driven process that said, we have identified this really difficult you know, climate problem. We got to figure out a solution and we've got to start adopting this kind of in a very quick manner. And it worked. And it worked against all of the resistance that you would have expected from the incumbents. Same kind of thing happened in SO2 land. So acid rain was a, you know, 10 years later was seen as a really big problem. It was defined as basically the Midwestern coal-fired power plants were generating so much SO2 into the atmosphere. It was, you know, destroying all kinds of things in, in New England in particular. And the lakes were becoming acidic. So, you know, scientists went about a whole process of saying, you know, what can we do about this? Engineers and economists. And we came out with a really novel program called the cap and trade program. And a certain amount of allowances were were allowed and utilities had to buy equivalent allowances for whatever their emissions were. Lots of economists looked hard at this and they decided that, you know, those allowances are going to start trading at two to $3,000, I think it was, per ton of SO2. And the reality was when, they, when that market structure, it's a, basically a cap and trade market structure was put in place, allowances traded at $200 a ton. And instead of building, so the engineers, economists all looked at the idea of, you know, these large coal-fired power plants would need to spend a billion dollars or whatever it was to build flue gas desulfurization and take the, the acid out of their emissions before it went up the, the stack, which, you know, was very clear what that could cost and, and how that would get translated down to a kilowatt hour and the equivalent of cost of allowances. It wasn't the solution. The solution turned out to be Powder River Basin coal, which is very low sulfur coal compared to the eastern coal. And all of a sudden, those Powder River Basin coal, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 miles away, depending on where they were, were being shipped in trains all the way to these power plants. And you know, I'll, I'll, I'll remember the Gavin plant, which I think was at the time the largest coal-fired power plant in the United States, 5,000 megawatts, built by AEP, American Electric Power, and at the mouth of the mine for the, the, the coal production on that. And it was built with the mindset, this is going to be the least expensive way to be able to produce power because we won't have to transport it all. We'll have it at this mine. It was an underground mine and they were pulling out of the mine and putting it right into the power plant. They shut the mine down. They started importing coal from 
from Powder River Base, and they never built a scrubber, at least at that time they hadn't built a scrubber. And all of a sudden, they were producing electricity at a lower cost than they were when they were operating that mine. So the mindset of, you know, the incumbents was, oh, this is going to be disastrous. Our electricity rates in the Midwest are going to go up by, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent, whatever the numbers were. And it turned out it was done at such a low cost because it created, you know, novel solutions. And nobody necessarily had predicted the idea that this Powder River Basin coal could offset this high sulfur coal from the east until the market structure was put in place. So, yes, I like a carbon price. I think a carbon price unleashes innovation, both from a technology standpoint and from a sort of putting together the, the pieces in a very different way than we otherwise would. So you're an optimist because you feel like once a carbon price were in place, it would have a big impact? And not just a carbon price. I think that there's so much concern about this challenge and there's neat new people coming into it, yourself and others, that you know they will create solutions. I just hope they get busy and do it fast enough and significant enough to face the carbon challenge that we have. So, but And carbon price may very well be a part of that. I'm not sure that it will for a lot of different reasons, but it might very well be a part of that. But innovation is what's the, the needed. Innovation in the incumbents, innovation in kind of new players, innovations just like you're doing that is grounded in the facts and understand what the challenges are and, and you know, bring apart the solutions. And some entities or funds, for example, so if you take Breakthrough Energy Ventures as, as one example, they have it's got to be X gigaton, you know, if it's yeah. not over a gigaton of a potential impact on emissions reduction, then then it's not over the bar to be worthy of them getting involved essentially and then there's others that say hey like don't use a plastic straw yeah right? yeah and and then there's everything in between so you know, for listeners who who are out there seeing both of those extremes of hey anything less than the big stuff is a distraction and we should only just focus on getting a few key things done. And then there's other people who say every little bit helps and we need a nickel, a dime, a penny, whatever. Just keep pushing things forward. Yeah. Where, where do you come out of Yeah, that? so it's all the above. Yeah. And I totally respect Breakthrough Energy Ventures and others that have, you know, 10 and 20 year timelines in terms of their planning horizon and thinking about making big impacts over that time frame. That's great. And that needs people who are there. I think there's opportunities in the three-year timeframes that are really important as well. And investors should be looking at those opportunities and should be figuring out how to fund those innovations that could actually deliver that. Internoc was a case example about it. I, I used to screen any new technology company, not from the standpoint of the the energy technology, not from the standpoint of what's the eventual, you know, when the revolution happens and everybody's really caring about this, you know, how could, how we're going to make money, but what's, how do you ring the cash register today? And that's where the Internox solution was so interesting because they had a solution that could, you know, be better than building peaking power plants, basically, in certain markets at certain times to offset the capacity constraints. And they delivered against that and delivered in a way that was economically attractive. It also meant they were, you know, wiring up what became thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of end users, understanding their energy load in a very different way than anybody.
anybody has ever done and enabling all kinds of other possible value added services. So once the revolution comes in carbon prices or time of use rates or whatever is the mechanisms that get put in place, there's sort of a trusted partner that's already there that can help actually monetize that. So there's a range of different things. And then individual choice. I mean, we have an all solar home here. We've gone to, you know, very significant energy efficiency investments in this house. I drive an electric hybrid vehicle. I don't like to take a lot of airplane trips for a lot of reasons. I mean, so the carbon footprint of an individual is also important. Not not because it changes the needle necessarily for the planet, but because it gets a mindset going. I think every business, every individual needs to be thinking about their carbon choices in a way that says, you know, let's not take business as usual for granted. It, it's not the whole solution, but it is a part of it. And I think it will stimulate us to continue to come up with better ideas and hopefully better businesses that can really address this. If I'm a listener who has a job and is not necessarily looking to leave my job, but is concerned about the planet and wants to know how to help, then what do you tell that person? I mean, it all depends on kind of where their circumstance is. If they're, I mean, I I remember talking to some folks who are in the commercial real estate business and they're saying that they can't, you know, rent non-energy efficient buildings to law firms anymore because new lawyers coming into law firms want to make sure that the the corporation, the, the firm is thinking hard about these issues and is, you know, putting investments and putting their real estate in, you know, lead plus buildings or lead gold or silver buildings only. And that's kind of neat. I mean, that it, so if you were a lawyer and you were looking for a company to go work for a firm, you choose the one that's sort of thoughtful about energy aspects and climate aspects of it. That's a really small thing, but it actually can help signal in a marketplace that this stuff actually matters. But also, you know, go out and get involved in some of the nonprofits that are involved in some of the, you know, environmental voters of Massachusetts and, and you know, go to the 350.org meetings and understand what kinds of things people are talking about. There's There's lots of very specific tasks that they can do and learn from for their own energy circumstances and and then vote accordingly and and put this as a priority and ask the representatives at every level at the mayor's office level at the state level at the federal level as to what are we doing on this because there's lots that can be done and that isn't being done yet and all of us can sort of raise it to a new level and then maybe someday you know choose your career accordingly and go find you know instead of working in the law firm go find the in-house counsel opportunity in the nonprofit or the startup or for the public sector and and go you know work there to try and help make a more direct difference in some of these aspects so there's a lot of opportunity for all of us and given that i'm sitting on a nice comfy couch here it almost feels like it could be in a psychologist's office so (laughs) so phil doctor (laughs) what advice you have for me you know the podcast, and I listened to a bunch of them, I thought it was really well done. And they're very engaging. I, I worry about all of us getting so entertained by all of this, not just in climate, but just all the issues. I mean, people watching MSNBC 24 hours a day and gets feeling like, well, I'm doing my citizens, you know, good work because I'm up to speed on what's going on. And it's like, or Fox or CNN, whatever. It's like, yeah, really? I mean, go out and go make a difference in the world in addition to, you know, put together nice, well-packaged podcasts and help people on on exposing your own climate journey to to others. But, you know, over some period of time, 
you know, draw it to somewhat of a close and, and go and make a difference in some of this. But when you talk about picking up a shovel, I mean, how, how should I or anyone in my shoes go about figuring out where and how? Yeah, I don't have a lot. I mean, so I have done this for a while. And so that I have a network of people who reach out to me for assistance and, and perspective. And I'm very open about providing that and, and can help on those. I get a lot of inquiries, especially from younger people, but even you know, mid-career and, and older as to how to help. And it's not easy to, to point the way for them. I think I would put the public sector on the list as far as a place to, to network with and see if there's a productive opportunity there in the state or you know, maybe someday in the federal government to go be influential in, in trying to help be staffer in, in some of those roles or, or lead new programs in some of those areas because I think they can really make a difference. And it's not, it's not just for the lifers. I think that there's lots of models of you know, people coming in mid-career with the you know, right grounding and right uh, outlook that can really make a difference in those areas as well. Um, but I don't know is the short answer. I don't have like a simple advice. Often, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, I could have probably given you 20 companies that were looking for different folks to come in and take on sales or marketing or, you know, other kinds of activities that could be very relevant to a person kind of in a mid-career situation who's not necessarily uh, worked in this field, but has demonstrated themselves, you know, selling big software to, you know, whatever, uh, financial institutions or something. And and right now, I don't see those dozens of opportunities out there of thriving or hope to be thriving uh, startup companies that have lots of great hiring opportunities for you. I mean, you told me before we started recording that, you know, that it was important to you when you moved into the house to do a bunch of work to, you know, to make it not just like green, greenish tint, but like really environmentally f- friendly, which is commendable. But you also told me it was really hard and that there was a bunch of heavy lifting and cobbling together and it was like prohibitively expensive and, and, and all these other things. I feel like that's kind of a that's representative of everything for people that want to help with climate change today. And one of the things I've been trying to do with the pod is start to figure out how to how to grease the skids, if you will. And maybe the pod is 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 just one way to do that, or not the most effective way. But I mean, do, do you agree that that we need to figure out how to remove the friction from getting people to move more in this direction, regardless of? In what capacity? And if so, what ideas do you have for how we might do that? Yeah, I definitely think we need more people rowing in this boat to go make a difference in our climate future. And so, yes, bringing new people into this. But it also includes, you know, major established corporations, utilities or fossil fuel companies or generators or the like, figuring out how to get them to be more excited about sort of a a different future than this business as usual kind of model. And I don't have good ideas of how to do that. I know I would love to give you, Jason, I'm not holding back at all. I think that it is- saving the best ones for yourself. I get it. I get it. I don't think (laughs) it it is a little bit of the blind leading the blind on this stuff. You know, it's not, it's not, you, you are looking at it accurately. It's not because you haven't gotten exposed to it far enough or well enough to not see, you know, really good, smooth paths. So why are you an optimist? 
because I think human nature solves big problems. I mean, one of the, there's, there were two meetings I had when I was in the public sector. One was with a UK minister, and I didn't appreciate in the UK. He was a conservative, liberal government was in charge, but he was considered the shadow climate minister. So he would be the guy who would be named the minister of climate when a conservative government would be put in place. So he was a parliamentary member. And they, they do this as a course of business for all the ministries that they, they choose a, a shadow minister. And he was so excited because he saw Governor Patrick and all of what we were getting going. And he said, you know, you Americans, you may take forever to get involved in something that matters. But once you get mobilized, you're going to make a difference in the world. And, and he was just excited for the world in terms of what you know, we could possibly deliver. And so I'm still fundamentally excited by that. I look at all of the accomplishments, not just that, you know, humankind has done, but in particular America has done in different times. You know, the recent 50 year anniversaries of the Apollo mission, you know, it was really inspiring to look at what all had gotten accomplished, how, how difficult that was. The climate successes we've had in terms of ozone and SO2 and, you know, the possibility of doing that in, in carbon is certainly there in front of us. You know, there's a lot of reasons to be excited from that standpoint. The second minister that I met with was the, and this also sort of is in the back of my mind through much of this, was a, a German foreign minister. This was at a Harvard event. So he was the ambassador to the U.S. from Germany. And he was telling me, you know, privately that he doesn't want to be in a place that his grandparents were when the grandkids started asking them, you know, this guy Hitler started taking over. Jews were being sent away. What did you do? And there weren't good answers to the, for the grandkids. And so, you know, he wants to, from a climate standpoint, have good answers for his grandkids and do as much as he possibly can. And that sort of motivates me. I've got grandchildren that I care a lot about and I want to work on this and I want other people to join us in working on this. I wish I had a roadmap for you. I wish I had an easy place for you and for others to say, this is how you can plug in here and go make a difference. Right now, if if you were just generic about all of this, and you know, especially in a situation where you don't have to you know, meet your rent check every month, I'd get involved in the political processes. I would get involved in some candidate or candidates that really care about this issue and try and help them get elected. And not that they, any of them, in my mind, have the full answer on any of this stuff, but boy, moving forward, and not just at the federal level, but at state levels and even you know county and city levels, school board levels, to go make a difference on, on these matters, I think is, is something all of us can do as concerned and engaged citizens. I mean, talking about the politics and upcoming elections and, and things of of that nature, do you feel like what happens in the 2020 election is an important moment for the climate fight? Absolutely. But it's not unique. I mean, we've had important moments and this is an important moment and we ought to take it seriously and act accordingly. 2016 obviously was an important moment for the climate fight and it clearly didn't go well from a climate standpoint in terms of how people got mobilized and how they acted on that. It's absolutely clear there's a huge number of other issues that are also important. I wouldn't diminish any of them. But for the folks of us that really do care about the climate, we can't let that not be considered in this election cycle. I mean, the last election cycle, there wasn't a single question that was asked in any of the debates about climate, as I understand. And, you know, obviously that hasn't been the case this time. But we need to do more to sort of make sure that this is a focused issue from the candidate's perspective. So if climate's your number one issue and there's 
two Democratic candidates, one that has climate as their number one issue and the other one that statistically has a much better chance of beating Trump but doesn't mention climate barely at all, or if they do, they just go through the motions, which one should you support? I don't know yet, and I'll let you know as it gets closer. I definitely see a need to not have Donald Trump in the president's office. And so that's to me, is beating that person will help on the climate front tremendously. I like talking to you retired people because anytime I talk to someone who's actively has work to do in DC now, either they're not going to talk on the microphone or if they're feeling good in the moment and they talk on the microphone, they make me delete it before the episode gets. So, <laughs> especially Republicans, because I think they're all afraid of, of that man and they don't want to you know, say anything that's going to lock them out of all the important discussions that they need to be in. I understand. It's, yeah, uh, yeah it's not my circumstance. So <laughs> that's right. No, I, it's, I mean, I, I said the same thing yesterday. I, I, I tweeted that I was looking for, I, I talked to an oil and gas executive who left and he left a few years ago and you would think that means he can speak freely, but he's, he's in shackles for five years because okay. of the severance thing. Right. And so it's like, they really know how to get their tentacles into you. So what I need to find is, is someone who left like five years and a day ago. Yeah. But yeah. it gets back to the, but it gets back to your question on the, you know, do you go with someone who's got a chance of beating a better chance, quote unquote, of beating them or the someone who's purer on the climate issues yeah. candidate. And, and I don't give a lot of stock to the, prognosticators about who's got the best chance of beating someone at this stage. And I probably won't for, you know, 12 months or so. Well, look at the last election. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so all of the horse race stuff that's going on now and who's up, who's down and, you know, who's gaining momentum or losing it. It's like, fine, let's let the process kind of work its way out. I almost wish there was no polling data for the next, you know, six or nine months so that people could just talk about ideas and then you it, know, get it, those it's subset. like companies that recently go public and the CEO says, don't let me check you or catch you checking the stock price. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's just like, put your head down and run the company yeah. and then the stock price in the long term will be worth the most. Yeah. 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 That is actually a good yeah. analogy. But so it's I mean, it's tough, but this is really important work. I mean, and and. Don't diminish the role of the utilities is kind of one other perspective I would want to give you. The challenge that they do, they, the idea that they have to meet perfectly everywhere all the time, the demand for electricity with the supply of electricity with no warning as to how that demand is going to change, you know, in an hour or a day or whatever, other than their, their you know, forecast. And they do it in a way that keeps the power on 99 plus percent of the time is truly remarkable. The U.S. National Academy of Engineering actually labeled the electric grid as the most significant engineering achievement of the last century. And it's not appreciated or, or seen or known by a lot of folks because it works so darn well. But it's a very interesting business model that that is sort of built up around the world, basically, and an ability to put these assets in place sufficient to meet almost all of the potential and actual demand and perfectly synchronize that with, you know, everywhere all the time is really a rather remarkable accomplishment. And now the challenge is how to do that with, you know, almost no fossil in the in the mix. And, you know, that's not a small challenge, but it's one that I'm sure from an engineering standpoint and an innovation standpoint, there are solutions for. And then once you do that, then it's like, okay, let's electrify all transportation. Let's, you know, electrify heating in, in all homes. Those are big, challenging issues to work. But boy, if we could get to a, a near zero carbon electric utility structure, it would empower so many other innovations to, to come about. And so figuring out ways to make that happen is 
kind of a really interesting challenge from my standpoint. It's a great point too, because on the one hand, consumers say, stop emitting, we can't emit, right? And then on the, on the other, they're like, I've had no power for the last 10 minutes, you jerks. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, which one is it, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the difference between having electricity and not is being in a civilized world and not being in a civilized world. And you look at countries and regions that don't have reliable electricity, and you know, the, I, I don't have current data, but you know, in Haiti where I've worked some, it's you know, people's life expectancy is like 50 years old. And part of that is not having electricity. And, you know, getting electricity is just, it's not just a nice to have, it's like survival for lots and lots of folks. So it's a remarkable accomplishment that it in fact works. And yeah, it's, it's not fully appreciated. And it's not a surprise. This is the most intense fixed asset industry in the world. It takes $3 of assets to generate about a dollar of revenues. And that revenue you get on the order of a 10% margin. So instantly, you're in a world of 30-year horizons of thinking about, you know, making 10 cents on your $3 of assets over the next 30 years. It, it kind of looks like an okay business venture. And so you adopt all kinds of structures around it, like monopolies and franchises, and, and it makes it hard for you to innovate and change. And so all of that is part of the reality of what you're dealing with. And and it's kind of, you know, it's an exciting part. That's what has to get changed and adopted into a very low fossil world that we got to get to very, very soon. I mean, I've heard some people say that that it's easy for you to say the climate is more important than energy poverty from a position of Western privilege, but for the billion plus people that it's like the dire conditions that you're worried about in the future Exist. There's a billion people that live Exist. that today, yeah. right? And what's more important to address? Absolutely. Right? And it, it, that's a tough one because at the same time, the planet's not going to be livable for anyone if we don't get our act together on from a carbon standpoint. But, but these but, aren't either yeah. ors. These yeah. are opportunities to, again, pick up a shovel and move some dirt. I mean, you can get people electricity off grid in lots of the world, especially now with solar and storage that doesn't have to depend on diesel fuel and doesn't have to depend on you know generators being shipped all around and figuring out how to get fuel to all of these. So, I mean, it, it's it's not the same mix as what's going to work in, in you know the US or developed economies in the world, but there's opportunities to do a very low carbon footprint grid in lots and lots of places. So I, I don't look at these as either or challenges. And I think finding the best solution to any of these is like, I don't know, you could take infinity to figure that out. It's find a, a good enough solution to some parts of this climate problem and then make it work really, really well. And then hopefully build and expand up, upon that. And back to your point before about like getting more people to care. One of the knocks I've heard on getting more people to care is that the way you get more people to care is you make a movement out of it. And by making a movement out of it, it's like instinctually you think that's a good thing and all the positivity that comes along with that, but it also increases polarization and makes it harder to get anything done across the aisle. So how do you think about that? Yeah, I don't, I'm not a politically savvy person in terms of political processes. I write, write a few checks occasionally for, you know, different candidates that basically people that know me, but I don't feel good about it. And, and I don't feel good about the whole sort of finance structure of our election system. And so, you know, getting people, you know, Tom Steyer's, a guy who's now running for president. He's a guy who I've met a bunch. I have tremendous appreciation for his commitment and, and his devoting of a big chunk of his, or a chunk of his capital to trying to make a difference in the world. And climate is a big part of what he's focused on. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't excite me to try and drive a movement. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like 
denigrate people who are moving towards that. It's just not where I'd rather be supportive of them and talking to my neighbors and saying, hey, guys, you know, this candidate versus that candidate, this seems to have better solutions from an energy standpoint than, than that one. So given that, what are your thoughts on the Green New Deal? So the the aspirations the Green New Deal 100% alignment for if they I think if they had actually looked at a carbon pricing mechanism to fund the Green New Deal it might have really changed some of the dialogue. I think there are aspirations beyond the energy side of the Green New Deal in terms of inequality in terms of employment. I don't think is thought through fully. I I applaud those as well. I think we got to really deal with some of those issues, but I'm not sure that trying to create you know green jobs as the answer for inequality income inequality is necessarily going to be a very productive path i think mm-hmm. that the types of jobs i work with an organization up in lowell that that works with basically ex-convicts and tries to work with them youth and tries to work with them to get them into sort of productive paths in, in life one of the things the executive director was exploring was the idea of energy efficiency workers as a possible avenue and then the more he understood the appreciate and appreciation that we're going to take ex-cons under very little supervision and put them into people's homes and businesses, it may not be a really productive aspect of this. And so, you know, that didn't become a path. They're actually doing amazing things around catering and corporate catering. They're doing amazing things around making chopping blocks from discarded wood for, you know, whole foods and stuff. So they've got a lot of other more productive venues. But so, yes, we need an amazing amount of work done in people's homes and stuff around energy efficiency and, you know, solar panels and the like. I'm not sure it's going to respond to the challenge of income inequality in anywhere appropriate level. I'd rather move in my own mind to, you know, a $15 universal minimum wage and then, you know, maybe even grow it from there and and figure out ways to, to help with, you know, a lot of the economic opportunity challenges of not having good schools and not having, you know, good training programs, much more so than just the idea that the Green New Deal is going to solve all the in- income inequality aspects of it. You mentioned that you're a proponent for a price on carbon. Is there a, a particular model or a particular pro- proposal or group that, that resonates with you the most? Yeah. So the one that, that was actually put in place for the acid rain, which was done in George H. Bush's timeframe, mm-hmm. which was a cap and trade. Mm-hmm. It's harder in carbon. There was, I can't remember, a few dozen or maybe a hundred or so power plants that were targeted in the acid rain initiative. So it was really easy to watch the emissions of those hundred or few hundred power plants. Carbon requires a universal global accounting scheme, basically that says how much carbon is being sequestered, how much carbon is being emitted, and then, you know, figure out the the pros and or the you know consumption and the supply and demand of that and then work it down to a lower and lower emissions allowance. So it's a lot more sources. It's a lot more difficult from an engineering standpoint, but I like that structure. And basically for the same reason I talked about with the acid rain is it created solutions that people didn't know would exist. So instead of saying it was going to be a $2,000 an allowance ton for SO2, the market determined they could get it done for $200. Very similar things might happen in carbon as well. We get a lot of, you know, excitement around efficiency could solve a chunk of this climate problem. No, efficiency really isn't going to solve any of the climate problem. It doesn't matter. If you put a price out there and you see people move a lot of CO2 because they're wasting less of it from leaky buildings, it's like, great. 
And if they can do that at a lower cost than, you know, putting solar panels out there or, or other solutions, it's like, you know, the market will determine it. So I really like unleashing the innovation of a capitalist market for this problem as aggressively and as, as significantly as we can. And I think it's a lot better than just putting a price out there, a tax or, or the like. But then we get into the realities of implementation and what's politically acceptable. And, and you know, people don't like the idea of sending more money to government. So what are we going to do with this revenue sources? I mean, it, it's not a simple set of political challenges, but but from uh, economic signaling and, and seeing what could happen, it kind of excites me is to do a cap and trade kind of a sector. So if someone were to ask you if you could change one thing to move the needle most in the climate fight, what would it be? Would cap and trade, is that your answer? Yeah, and I would take it even smaller. I would do cap and trade strictly for electric utility and independent power producers, but for generating power plants in the United States in the next you know three years and do it at a substantial enough level that shows that the allowances are you know at x now and a year or two years from x it'll be 10 percent less and 10 percent less and 10 percent less so that we get that down it's not the whole climate challenge we got to worry about cement and glass and all kinds of industrial processes we got to worry about agriculture we got to worry about transportation but that part of the sector we actually could monitor we could say is emitting x amount of carbon now and over the next, you know, five years, it's going to emit, you know, something X minus that amount of carbon. Uh-huh. And so along those same lines, so if someone gave you $100 billion and said, you can have this, but only if you allocate it towards a thing you think will move the needle most to maximize its impact on the climate fight, where would you put it? How would you allocate it? Yeah, $100 billion seems like a lot of money, and it is for a lot of reasons. It's chump change in the climate challenge that we're dealing with. So I'd want $100 billion a year forever. And I'd start addressing things like, you know, the, a carbon pricing scheme. And I'd start putting a carbon accounting mechanism around the world. One of the big challenges is, is leakage between, you know, folks that are caring about carbon and folks that aren't caring about carbon. It turned out to not be, we looked at that hard in terms of the, the regional greenhouse gas initiative, Reggie, people worry that the states that aren't going to be participants are going to ramp up their coal-fired plants and, and be sending all this electricity. It, it turned out not to happen in that circumstance, but that's kind of a big deal. It's appropriate. And then offsets and, and, you know, trying to, you know, buy some tree planting in Indonesia to offset emissions here. It's, you know, it's really, really hard to stay on top of all of those issues under sort of an ad hoc process. And so if you had a significant amount of capital that you could get the political will, get the laws put in place, get a market structure put in place, and then get a global accounting of carbon in whatever mechanisms is most useful, both the puts and takes. So the sequestration that's happening, you know, every day this, you know, during summer months when plants are growing, as well as, you know, during winter months when they're not growing. And, and so that we're, we're working the entire carbon cycle, I think would be really quite exciting to see. And logistically, where would that money actually get allocated to bring that about? So it, it almost, it, the, the issue of, uh, I would have that money go back to the, to the governments and have them, you know, reduce their national debt, invest in schools, do whatever makes sense from a, from a standpoint. The, the reality- No, to actually, if you want to bring about the type of policy that you're, that, that you're advocating for, and you have a hundred billion a year. Oh, oh, yeah. Hi, like yeah. where do where do you put it? Yeah, I would probably yeah. if if it was that level, I would probably start a think tank that is really aggressively putting this together as a practical set of solutions that could be implemented in in Congress. It isn't a hundred billion a year; it's a hundred billion one time. But we'll give it for for sake of argument. You will 
we'll make a temporary exemption. Yeah, yeah. But, but the reality is, I mean, and there are phenomenal folks that are working on this issue and have given it some thought, but they're doing it in a very incremental standpoint. And I love them and appeal and they appeal to me and, you know, some I support, but they're doing it knowing the limitations of our political circumstances. So they're doing it knowing the incrementalness of what, it, you know, they're, they're so focused on the art of the possible, which is completely understandable. And, you know, they're taking lawsuits to, to the federal government appropriately to stop bad things from happening, um, but it's insufficient. And so if you could step back from the, the capital requirements and really put in place a model that said, okay, th- this is how we could really get a handle on it. And, and I do think I would start with the electric sector because even though it's hugely challenging and it's regulated by 50 states plus the District of Columbia Commission and, and you know, it's it's got all these ISOs, it's got FERC, it's got all these challenges for it. I think it, it would be a really interesting solution that actually could be put in place in less than five years that would actually show us moving our carbon future down pretty substantially. Well, we covered a lot of ground today, <laughs> Phil. Anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for our guests? No. I for, our, for our guests. You're the guest. Yeah. Any parting words for our listeners? Yeah. I, I know that I come across in many ways as a skeptic and you know pessimistic, but it, it doesn't tell the whole story. I'm actually quite optimistic that we're going to solve this. I just wish we had done it sooner. And, you know, I'm looking for, you know, what comes out of all of our efforts to make a difference for us all. So let's go make something happen. Well, if there's one message that I take from today and hopefully our listeners as well, it's get out of shovel. <laughs> Start digging. Yeah. Move some dirt. Yep. Sounds good. Okay, Phil. Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, Please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.